Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Hey, Sunridge, both here in the building and online. I know there's so much sickness going around, and we've noticed that our uh, online attendance has gone up. So one of the things that we've learned uh, during COVID early on is we had such a great team, uh, mainly led by... Uh, Danny Sugimoto that put together all of our technical stuff and made it possible that we could hold church uh, for you even in your uh, home if you're uh, just watching today because you're sick or you're concerned about becoming sick or you have family members are sick. It's been the whole story, you know, so like it's just on and on and on. Who's over it? Okay, yeah, me too. I don't know. Um, like most of you, I've held a lot of jobs in my lifetime, and all of them had some kind of um, qualification process or interview process, recruitment, and some of those were minimal. You know, my first job was at Dipper Dan's Ice Cream in North Miami, Florida. And uh, I got the job through my drum teacher who said, hey, you want some part-time hours? And so, like, at the age of 14, I was dipping ice cream at Dipper Dan's, and uh, that job lasted a while. I think I ate most of the profits sneaking ice cream. But, uh, and then uh, after college, I became a carpenter. And uh, I worked for a home builder in Cindy's hometown in Holland, Michigan. And I got that job. My interview and qualification process was he was her neighbor, the owner of the company. And he knew that I was looking for a job. And he said, well, why don't you show up on Monday and then we'll see how you work out. So, uh, you know, sometimes the qualification process is minimal. Sometimes it's quite extensive. I have to say that uh, getting hired as a fireman, and, I, and for many of you that's totally a news because I don't really like to talk about it that much, but like uh, that had to be the most rigorous process. Anybody that's gone for a job like that in public safety, you know, uh, everything that they put you through. But I have to say that a close second was going through the process of become lead pastor here. Uh, it started with a 27-page application um, and like all kinds of interviews after that. We had a pastoral selection committee, I met with them multiple times and as individuals, with our elder board, with individual elders, with our staff, and then with the team, the consulting team uh, at that time, Church Resource Ministries, I went through an entire process with them as well. Then they had me do a medical checkup because I was old and they didn't want me to die the next day. Uh, they went through my history. They did an extensive strengths and weaknesses and leadership test and then like gave me all the subsequent feedback that went along with it. And then ultimately the congregation voted and uh, somehow I had fooled 97% of you into thinking that I might be at least at least, if nothing else, your last choice, so you better not send me down the road. 
And uh, the only difference between this job and the fire department was you're never off probation here, I've learned. You know, and each week, I look at that offering and I say, oh, do I get to stay another week? That's great. So, you know, uh, we're going through Luke's gospel. And uh, as we've been mentioning, doing it in a unique way. We're going uh, kind of by the calendar. So we started at Christmas. We're going to end with Easter. We started with the birth of Christ. We're going to end with the resurrection. And it's all about following Jesus. That's the picture, the image that I want us to have as we go through reading and studying the Gospel of Luke. And this week, we, we took on a pretty big chunk of Scripture, Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through chapter 5, 26. And I hope that you're reading along with us. We're, we put these passages, the section of Scripture that we're going to tackle, uh, in the email that I send out every week, and then it's also on, the, on your note sheet now as well. So you know the chunk of Scripture that we're going to be looking at. And last Sunday, we saw how Jesus... Uh, launched his ministry with this announcement, and he quoted from the prophet Isaiah. And he said this, that I came, Jesus said he came, to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And immediately after that, if you read along with us, you see that he got to work doing exactly that. He frees a man from a demon. He cures Simon's mother-in-law of a fever. He heals a man of leprosy, and he heals a man that is lowered through a roof because the crowd is so great they can't get in. A, friend, a group of friends bring their friend to Jesus, and he heals him on his mat. But where I'd like to focus today in this big passage or section of Scripture is how Jesus gathers his team, his first team for ministry. He is choosing apprentices, or, you know, that's used interchangeably with disciples. A lot of us would say that. It means the same thing. And in the summer series that we did uh, called Formed, the first message about spiritual formation, um, I covered in detail uh, the rigorous process that someone went through in the first century to become an apprentice of a rabbi at that time. And uh, again, when I use that word apprentice, it's just like using the word disciple. Who Jesus picks as his first apprentices and how he picks them, we're going to see, is really, really unusual. So we're going to go through this section that Ken read for us today, and then we're going to draw out a few observations. Jesus is teaching in this region of Galilee that is kind of like where he's from, and he's becoming popular. So popular that when people hear he's going to be at synagogue or he's going to be teaching outside even, um, crowds are coming. And it's getting so crowded that people can't hear. They can't access what he's saying. And so in this occasion, in Luke 5, he sees some fishermen. They're kind of by the sea. And uh, there are two boat owners in this scene. And it's, it's two brothers. It's uh, Simon and Andrew and James and John. And they're in a partnership, Luke tells us. They work together. They coordinate their fishing efforts. And it's the end of the day, and they're cleaning up. And it's so crowded that Jesus needs some way that he can be back and people can hear him. And so he commandeers uh, one of the fishermen's boat, Simon's. And he says, push the boat out 
a little further, and I'm going to teach from there. And then afterward, in verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. By the way, I mean, even this part of uh, Luke's gospel, we learned that Simon and Peter are the same person. Um, Peter cha- or Jesus changes his name later. Peter means rock, Petra. And so Jesus changes his name and starts to refer to him as Peter. But when Jesus tells him to do that, to, to try to fish again, in verse 5, Peter, or Simon answers him, Master, we've worked hard all night, and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And you can, can't you hear a little frustration in his voice, like a little restraint? Um, I mean, it, it seems kind of futile because this is the wrong time of day to fish. You fish at night, and they've already done that. And so it's unlikely that they're going to catch anything. And Peter, being Peter, if you're, when you get to know him, he needs to explain all this to Jesus. So Jesus is up to date. And, uh, you know, he's basically saying, hey, they're down deep at the heat of the day, and we fished all night without results. And uh, it's obvious here that Simon already knows Jesus. In fact, he had healed his mother-in-law. So he refers to him as master. He's, he's, he's a, a rabbi that he has great respect for. And even though he kind of like qualifies what he's saying uh, and why he doesn't really want to follow through on this idea, out of respect for him, master, he patronizes him a little and he says, because you said so, I'm going to do this. And it pays off, right? In verse 6, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And all the fishermen said, amen, right? Isn't this a miracle that every fisher person dreams of? Like killing it so bad that you can't, you can't even like handle all the fish. I had uh, days where I went out with my dad in the Florida Keys, and we would fill our boat with fish. And then we would eat fish as a family for like months. I still love fish, though. But this is like a favorite miracle of anyone who, this is their living. It's not just a great day fishing. It's a miracle. Or Jesus knows a lot more about fishing than Peter does. And so there's this huge take. And remember, this is their livelihood. So this is a a windfall to, to the entire partnership. And it's interesting to think about, like, why Jesus chooses to do this miracle. I mean, he might be just paying Peter back, you know, like, with a bonus for, like, letting him rent his boat. He could just be demonstrating he has power over everything, or he could be setting up a compelling illustration to those present in the call to join him as fishers of men. And the others are watching, his partners, James and John, and so they, they have to wave them over. So there's some distance. They signal them, and they come, and they, they bring this catch all together. So if you're Simon in that situation, 
how do you react? Like, what, what do you, you have to feel elation, right? Like, geez, we're not, you know, we're paying the bills this month. Simon is unsettled by it all. In verse 8, he says, when he saw this, when this all happened, he falls at Jesus' knees and says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. So in this moment, faced with this miracle, and probably an overwhelming sense of gratitude for what this means for his family, um, he feels unworthy. He's undeserving. And also we're seeing that something really powerful has happened here. Yes, there's a huge profit. It's a great day at the office. The stocks are going to look good tomorrow, right? But it's also a miracle. It's an obvious miracle, and, G- and, and Simon recognizes in this moment, if he hasn't already, that Jesus is not just a mere human, and his response is, go away from me. Of course, everyone that is watching this happen is totally blown away. Verse 9, for he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, And then Jesus gives an object lesson. And he says to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. You're going to be fishers of people. Now Jesus, he's not just being pithy here. But that is tweetable, right? Jesus doesn't walk around saying pithy things. You know, he doesn't call Matthew into following him and say, from now on, the tax ledger of sin debt will be erased through you. He doesn't say to Judas, from now on, you'll be stealing the souls of people for heaven. Fishing for people fits the scenario, but it's also a rabbinic saying. Of like, if you come and apprentice under me, I will create something in you that you can pass on to other people. So he's inviting them to follow him as in, a, in the context of first century uh, rabbinic training. And so he's choosing them. He's inviting them to apprentice under him. They are his first choices. Only in the first century rabbinic tradition, fishermen don't get invited into rabbi school. It reminds me, I think I've talked about this before, like there were certain sports that I was good at, basketball isn't one of them. And so like anytime we we're playing a pickup game or something, you know how the choosing of the teams goes, right? Two captains and then there's the sea of recruits and then they start picking. And do you know that even among my friends that said they loved me, I was always the last person chosen in basketball. Now, if you could pick a sport, like if it was a sport that involved anger and like reckless physicality and and being willing to take one to give one, that was my sport. But if it involved any kind of like uh, reflex or uh, actual athletic talent like basketball would, I was out. And so... I'd be standing there by myself. And do you know what got said at the end of the the draft? You got sipe. (laughs) That's how it always ended. 
And I just like stand there and says, like, you got sight. No one ever said, I want sight. Which brings us around to the beginning of my message, where if Luke is giving us an account of Jesus' first actions, this is like the early part of his ministry, he's picking his team. So what criteria does he have for these choices? And according to custom in the first century, he's not choosing his followers in the traditional way. So why is he picking them? And upon what basis? And those questions are part of the bigger picture and how we're looking at these these narrative sections of Scripture. And we have five questions. Hope you're getting more and more familiar with them, with what those are. Why do you think it was important enough for Luke to write this down? What do we learn about God? What do we learn about people? What does it tell us about the central story of Jesus and his resurrection? And what do we learn about following Jesus? And I, I am, and all of us, we're encouraging you as we go through Luke to be asking those questions as you do the readings. That's what our life groups are doing. We're encouraging you, even if you're not in a life group, to be doing, doing so as well. So like, in a way, I want to start by mashing together question two and three. You know, what do we learn about people and what do we learn about God from this uh, story? We see that Simon feels unworthy in the presence of God. And you know he's right. He's a sinner, right? And God is holy. But Simon's only half right. He's right about who he is. But he's wrong about what God thinks about that. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. In God's presence through Jesus, he's like, go away. I'm sinful. And this idea of because I'm a broken person, because I have sin in my life that God should leave, that's that's upside down. And we're going to see that. But isn't that just what we think? I mean, think back to the first human beings, Adam and Eve, sin, and what do they do? They hide from God. And yet, the exact opposite is true. I want you to see that our thoughts about God's thoughts about us are mostly wrong. That sounds a little bit like Princess Bride, doesn't it? I just thought of that. see, Simon, and maybe you and me, on occasion, misunderstand how God works and how he sees people who are imperfect, who fail, but yet recognize in their humility that that's who they are, that they're not perfect. And Jesus shows Simon that the sense of being less than and less than holy is precisely what God can work with. See, that's why the gospel, that people are broken and God gave his son, that's why that's good news. Jesus doesn't say, hmm, 
you're right, Simon. I'm really glad you feel bad about that. And in fact, I'm disgusted with you. And why can't you be more like my boy Job or Daniel? And he didn't say, Simon, here's a suggestion for you. Clean yourself up, do some religious stuff, and then when you, when, when you pass the qualifications, come over and get in the holy boat with all the other holy people. And he didn't say, you know, why don't you change your political affiliation? And why don't you, like, like, even though you argued with your family all the way over here, when you walk on the campus, you've been yelling at your kids, smile at everybody when you walk into the campus. And um, why don't you trade your Raider jersey in for a Hell is for Sinners t-shirt? Then I'll think about making you a disciple. You see, as we grow and we learn about who God is, there are some things that we as, we, as we read through the gospel of Luke even, we're going to see things like a reinforcing the beliefs that we already have. And then sometimes we're going to see something that like kind of blows your mind. Like it's not the way that you thought of it. And sometimes we're going to see that's a, that a belief that we held should be not just not embraced, but it should be rejected. And this is one of those ideas that we avoid God when we feel like we don't measure up, when we feel inadequate, or we feel guilt. It's why, you know, like, I've heard people say, I, you know, like, if I invite them to church, I can't come to church, the building will collapse in on me. I can't come this week because I feel guilty if you'd only known what I was doing on Saturday night. It's why people who experience a divorce either disappear entirely or do a slow fade. It's why people who um, spent the night on the couch because you're in a big fight with your spouse uh, don't want to come or because you have an addiction of some kind or your kids don't measure up to all the other kids. Um, you just think that everybody else is more spiritual than you, and so you avoid God. You know, Jesus, he got in Simon's boat. He got uncomfortably close to Simon in spite of who he was. You guys know what a close talker is? That person is like, you know, Jesus was a close talker. He got in the boat with Simon and it made him super uncomfortable. You see, we assume that our reaction is God's reaction and often it isn't. We saw again last week, Jesus said, he came to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free. And I guess he really must have meant it because here he is inviting some crusty fishermen onto his team. So the next time you think you're at your worst, expect Jesus to get in the boat with you. And when he does, don't even bother to tell him to go away because he's not going to do it. He's going to stay in the boat with you. We also learn something here about where God moves. See, the, in, in, in the first century mind, 
They worshiped at the synagogue, and there were holy places in the synagogue, and that's, that's where God dwelt. And so encountering God and God's power was done only in that context. And, you know, sometimes we can see a church building, even though this isn't very churchy here. I'd love to have some stained glass on the side. I think that's super cool. But um, we think that, like, the church is the holy place. And in in order for God, for us to encounter God, um, we have to be, one, isolated from all the contamination in in all the worldly settings and then surround ourselves with all these uh, spiritual symbols and sing with our arms outstretched, and that's where we encounter God. And, And we do, but Luke shows us a whole other context where we can encounter God. See, God doesn't just move in a, in a religious space like a church. And I'm not devaluing the importance of gathering as a church body. I am a pastor, after all. So, um, but if we tend to, and, and we do tend to think about this campus being a holy place, and it's, you know, I get it, it kind of is in a way. It's like I'm not trying to talk myself out of a career here. The gathering of God's people is holy. It's not so much about the space. And the service when we're here that we pour out is sacred to him as well. Whether you're working in the tech booth or you're holding a baby, you're upstairs with kids, whether you're leading worship or like ushing or designing or clicking slides, trying to stay along with me or looking for new faces or just simply acting interested in the pastor's message today. That's all sacred. I get it. But truthfully, it's not the place that is holy. It's the presence. It's the presence of Christ in our lives. In fact, we can do all of these things in holy spaces and it be totally unrelated and not experience the presence of Christ. You see, the presence of Christ makes ordinary places holy. If God is with us, then every place we find ourselves throughout the week, today when we leave this building, is holy. God's grace is there. His power is available. And He is in what we do. The Apostle Paul wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians, he said, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So, Christ is present when you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for your four-year-old the way they like to have it made. If they want the crust cut off, if you want to, like my wife Cindy does, use a heart stamp thing, like a thing that cuts it out in the shape of a heart, God's in that. He's, he's in it when you're driving heavy, heavy machinery this week or you're performing cataract surgery or you're cold calling a prospective big client, or you're showing a 12-year-old how to throw a curveball, which I don't know if you should be showing 12-year-olds how to throw a curveball, or you're teaching a first grader how to read or sound out words, or you're you're writing a service order at an auto dealership this week, or programming a computer, or uh, punching out payroll, or handling an HR issue, or studying for Psych 101, or whipping out fries at In-N-Out, God can be in that. Jesus here is working in a place that smells of fish and sweaty men. 
a bunch of dudes and a bunch of crowds around them. And Jesus is right there working. And he's not speaking from a highly, you know, sophisticated stage with a cool looking table with the pastor sitting on a chair looking all relaxed about what he's talking about. He's talking from a borrowed boat. Not only where God is present should be surprising to us, but in, in the way that he manifests his presence. I mean, we should all use our gifts in church settings when possible, when we have opportunities, serve somewhere, find a way. Again, I'm a pastor. I'm in the church business. I want to emphasize that. But what does God's moving look like? How does God move? He helped these guys catch some fish. He gave them a good day at work. He gave them a profitable day. And so God is in what you do this week to take care of your family, mom and dad. He, cuts, he puts the paycheck in your account, in a way. And he, he lets you, he takes your name, your reputation when you're reliable. And he makes other people want to do business with you. So whatever you're doing to make ends meet, whether you're a teacher or a carpenter or a pastor or you're retired or you're military, you're in the military, God is in what you're doing. Even if you're making a PB&J for a four-year-old. And last week, last week in the section of Scripture that we, we read, but we didn't specifically teach, we passed over the time and context in which Jesus was doing his ministry. And I want to show you this, like it's in Luke 3, 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Like there's just like a, you know, like this is something if you were reading, you probably just read over. It's a bunch of names. But if you know who these people are, they're not just a list of religious and governmental leaders. This reads like a who's who in the most corrupt, authoritarian, brutal, and abusive people ever to coexist at one time. It was the worst time in history to start a compassion ministry to be an advocate for the oppressed or those that have been unjustly imprisoned. And the location, first century Palestine, is the worst place to ever do it. And the point here is that you don't, in that context, you don't need a pulpit to give the gospel. You can do it in a boat. And you don't need the perfect political setting to reach people with God's love. You just need to abide in the presence of Christ and allow him to work through you. I'm going to shoot straight with you, Christians. You guys ready for this? You all okay? Okay. You asked for it. I see too many Christians bemoaning all the things that, that go with the time that we live in. 
Who's the governor? Who's the president? Who's the mayor? And in the middle of it, we miss what God can do through us. I can't tell you where to live or, you know, whether you should move to Texas, Tennessee, all, all the wonderful places that are so much better than this terrible community in Southern California where you can be in the mountains, in the desert, and ocean. I'm just saying. <laughs> you can go to where there's humidity and bugs and, you know, like brown. I, I don't know. Anyway, I've left preaching and God to meddling now. But don't put your eyes on the time and the place and the situation that you're in, no matter where you are, put them on Jesus and how he can work through you and where you are right now. And don't spend all your energy reviewing how the world isn't just the way that you want it to be. Instead, look for the opportunities that God has laid right before you. Because as Simon will learn later, um, you can't walk on the water if you're looking at the waves and wind. And we also learned something about the God who invites us to do this work wherever we find ourselves. You see, God can do a lot with because you say so. Did you catch that as we went through this? God can do a lot with that simple phrase. That's what Peter said when, you know, like he had all these reasons why. Come on. We already did all that. That seems futile. And isn't there sometimes like, I don't know, like a reluctance or maybe even a resistance that we have in us to choose to do God's will? Sometimes it's like, you know, Lord, is that re what you really want? It, it just, like, the, the, the picture here is very real. I'm not down on Simon about this. Um, there's, it just infers that, like, there's something else that's, like, there's a bigger picture. There's something going on, and it infers that there's a reason to push back. And yet, because you say so. I mean, isn't it a lot better if we just say to God, of course, of course I'll do that. But isn't it true that um, sometimes we just say, well, because you say so? This is something that Simon, as reactionary as he could be, seems to really gra grasp. The relinquishing of his will or his way in that moment to what God is doing. Come walk on the water. Well, because you say so. Put down that sword. Okay, because you say so. Sometimes you just feel a groove in what God is doing in your life, and it's easy, it makes sense. Uh, it's a repeat of what you know, and just keep doing the thing that you're already doing and thinking the way you're already thinking. And other times, isn't it true that God like pushes us out of our comfort zone? He changes something on us. He puts us in a place where we don't have all the answers. He will always retain the right to do that. And here Simon is just doing something that we do all the time. He has a routine. He has a way of doing things. He thinks a certain way. He has a pathway that he follows. And he says, you know, I've been doing this job for a really long time. 
and today it's not working. It's a bummer that I have to stick with it, and this is, this is where I am, but I don't know another way. I've always thought that things would work out this way based on the decisions I made here, but it doesn't seem to be. So, because you say so, Lord. I mean, my culture is saying that this is important and this is, these are the things that I should pursue and these are the values that I should embrace. But because you say so, Lord. If you're a student, you're probably saying, you know, like, what do my parents know? They don't, you know, like they're, they're just on my case and they have all these rules that I don't understand and I want to do this and I want to do that, but okay, Lord, because you say so. Maybe you're saying, you know, my, my spouse, my husband or wife, they're not giving me the attention that I am and it sure feels good at work, that person that is, and I'm attracted to that, but you know, Lord, because you say so, I'm going to do it differently. And I really, really want to care about these things right here. Like, this is what is so important to me, but, I, but it doesn't look like it's that important to you based on when I read the life of Jesus. And so I got to change what I think. I don't want to. But because you say so. I, I feel inadequate to be a pastor in this day and time. Okay, Lord, because you said so, I'll stick with it another week. <laughs> See, as a Christian, the longer you follow Jesus, you're going to find yourself in that place that um, what you think, what you want, the way you think it should, the story should go, because you have it all planned out, um, You've thought about what you'll say, what you'll do, what tomorrow looks like, and eventually you'll be on your merry way, and you can just get on with it, and then God will kind of like change your direction. He'll say, I, I need your boat. You say, yeah, I know you've been doing it that way, but why don't you do it this way? Why don't you approach that person a little differently? Why don't you think differently? about this or that person or this situation. He'll say, hey, why don't you fish from that side? And you'll be thinking in your mind, we already did that. There's no good reason. I fished there all night long, but what you'll hear yourself saying in spite of your thoughts is uh, because you say so. And that might be, in that moment, the most life-changing thing that you ever say. Because the next thing you know, Jesus will be choosing you as his apprentice and inviting you into being a part of what he's doing today to fish for people. And aren't you surprised that Jesus would pick you to be a part of that. 
For them, it meant leaving everything, and that's, I think that's unusual. It isn't often the case, but it's likely it will mean leaving something. Leaving a self-determined thing, leaving something that you just felt like you needed to hold on to. And he'll say, well, you just need to leave that behind. So why do you think it was important enough for Luke to write this down? It's another one of our questions. Why is it so important for us to hear this part of Jesus' story? I think it's because it ties into everything that we're learning about who Jesus is. And one thing you'll see as you read through any of the Gospels, you'll see people responding differently to Jesus. And just in this chapter, in Luke 5, we see the people, verse 26, everyone was amazed when they looked at Jesus and saw what he was doing. They gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. And then just before that, in verse 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves of the same person. Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so you have this irony developing where the Pharisees consider um, what Jesus does and says is blasphemy, but the people are awestruck. They're just blown away. The Pharisees are concerned with Jesus' doctrine and his non-traditional ways, but the people are amazed at his teaching and his power. And with our benefit of hindsight, as we look back at this story, who didn't get it? The Pharisees or the people? The Pharisees. The religious people. Does that scare you? It does me. Because I'm very religious. I have well-formed, thought-out, studied positions on doctrine and all kinds of things. I have strong opinions about almost everything. But here's, and this is the last thing that I'll roll out for your notes is um, maybe you've learned this already. We can expect to be surprised by Jesus. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I know that that idea of being surprised by Jesus sounds familiar to those of you that heard our message last week. Um, Not just in our message, but you're going to see that this is a a meta-narrative of Luke's gospel. How Jesus surprises people. It should be no um, surprise to you, this part won't surprise you, that I, I love football. I love college football. If you read my email this week, I talked about college football players that are going into the draft, and my wife Cindy read it, and she goes, oh, you just lost everybody in this first. You just lost all the non-football. I'm like, what? <laughs> I love, I love I love everything about college football. 
And at the beginning of the season, before the season even starts, you know, they start predicting who's going to win the national championship. There's all this conversation about it and all the pundits and sportcasters, they're all talking about it, lining it all up. And I love that. I even love when they argue about whether you can do that before a game is even played during the season. But we all have our, our opinions of how it's going to go, right? And then they play the games. And... Aren't you sometimes surprised by who wins the game? And that's why they play the games, by the way. You see, there are different kinds of surprises in life. There's like you're at dinner with somebody and they just pick up the tab. And that's a surprise. It's pleasant from the very beginning. There's like, like a surprise birthday party where you're first, first you're shocked, but then, then you get over that shock and then then it's pleasant. It's, it's a happy surprise. And then there's that time when you go to pick something up on your patio and five black widows jump out on your arms, right? That's another kind of surprise. And I know, anyway. I can tell you, Jesus will give you all of those. As you follow Jesus, you're going to be surprised. Um, you're going to be surprised that knowing yourself deep down, what you think and what you don't say and who you really are, you're going to be surprised that he gets in your boat with you and he won't get out no matter how hard you try to get him out of there. And you're going to be surprised that you'll sense his presence in working through you and things that you never, like you never equated, that God is in this and all of a sudden it will become like, you'll become aware that this thing, this simple mundane thing that I'm doing, God is present with me, and I'm, I'm doing it, and he's here with me and working through me in this. And then other times, um, you're going to find yourself surprised because you're going to be arguing with him about how he's transforming you and the pathway that he's putting you on and the beliefs that you've held, and what you think about other people. And it's going to make you really uncomfortable, and, and like all in your mind and your thoughts, and then what's going to come out of your mouth is, okay, because you say so. Because it's going to dawn on you in that moment that Jesus chose you, the most unlikely apprentice, as part of his team, and you'll be surprised once again that Jesus was right. Let's stand and worship together. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.